say? What would you like to say, Tommy? One, two, three. Go, Tommy! Grief can't be all negative and sad. everyone and welcome to another episode of the Good Days Bad Days podcast. I am Rachel Vani and here today we have a special guest Mira Simone. Hi. Hi. Thank you so much for being on and you know I came across uh Mira when I was on Instagram and I was looking around and I I came across this article. I don't even know if it was on your profile. Now I can't really remember, but I came across this article about uh, what happened in your journey. And I want you to tell a bit about it from from your perspective first, but you're an amazing writer. It really resonated with me and I just knew I had to have you on the podcast. And so thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much for having me. I'm honored to be talking. There's nothing more that I that I love than talking about Brian and grief. So I'm so happy to be here. Yeah, thank you. I I, I let's let's talk about Brian. Yeah. So why don't you kind of let us know what happened and 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 what brought you to this place you are today? Yeah. So Brian and I met eight years ago. Um, we had one of those meetings that was just magical. We literally, you know, linked eyes across a dance floor and he was very tall. He was six foot four. So I saw his little head above all the other heads and we, we literally just locked eyes and I felt an instant connection and we kept looking at each other. We were sort of nervous and a friend of mine was just like, that tall man keeps looking at you. You keep looking at him. I'm just going to introduce you to, and I was like, ah, what are you doing? And before I knew it, she had pulled me over to him and she was like, tall man, I'd like you to meet my friend Mira, Mira, tall man, tall man, Mira. And she ran away and we were just standing there looking at each other and just started talking. And I, I can't even describe the feeling. There are no words. And yet I try to use all these words all the time to describe our relationship and and what he meant to me. But it was just an instant connection. And I've never felt that before in my life with anyone. We just felt so comfortable with him right from the very first moment, but also so excited at the same time. And we spent the next, I think, like 12 hours together and just talked about everything. And over the next few weeks, we would have those same types of meetings that would just kept happening, which is we live in a huge city. We live in Toronto in Canada. It's a huge, huge city. Um, And we just kept running into each other. I'd literally be biking down a street and he'd be standing at the bottom. I'd walk into my local coffee shop and he'd be sitting there like, hi, Mira. And it was like these things kept happening. We kept running into each other. And there's this real sort of magical quality to it. And we just, we fell in love and we, you know, did all the, the, the things. We had a baby. We lived together. We just, we were, 
we were doing life and it was amazing. Um, and then when our daughter Davida was about a year and a half, Brian started noticing that he, his mole, a mole on his cheek that was under his beard that he knew was there. He'd had a beard the whole time I'd known him, but he knew it was there from earlier on in life. Mm-hmm. And he remembered it and it started to itch and sort of, he could just feel it. That's the way that he described it. He said, I can just feel it. I'm aware of it. Mm-hmm. And we knew that there was a history of melanoma in his family. His mother and grandmother had, had melanoma, but it had always been caught early, removed, no big deal. And so at the time I thought, oh, this is, you know, no big deal. Just go to the dermatologist, get it removed. I didn't really understand what melanoma was Mm -hmm. and what it can be. And so he did go to the dermatologist and they, they did a biopsy. And a week later he picked me up from work and we were in the car and he was just like, I have melanoma. and. I remember that moment so clearly. It was like my stomach opened up and my heart dropped down into my stomach. And I didn't even have any idea how bad, what that meant or how bad it could be at that point. Was he but worried? I'm sorry to interrupt. Was that okay? Worried? about it like prior like was he like oh this looks really kind of odd or was he just kind of like ah like during after the biopsy in that time was he worried at all I think he was I think that Brian always had he was a very very intuitive person and when I look back on his life now he lived his life like somebody who knew that they were going to die young and I know that doesn't make any sense and it's not like he talked about dying young or anything like that, but I think that he had a feeling that Mm -hmm. something was really, really wrong. Even before the results came back, even when the mole was just, it was a feeling in his cheek, he had Mm -hmm. a bad feeling about it. And I was, you know, super laid back about the whole thing. I was like, oh, it's no big deal, whatever. And to me, he seemed like the kind of person that nothing bad could happen to. Mm -hmm. He was just so full of life, so vibrant. He was so ridiculously healthy. But it's almost like he was so into health and so into living life. And he had this sort of something about him that, you know, people always commented on this really, really bright light. And now looking back on it, it almost seems like he had a feeling or something that he wasn't going to live a very, very long life. Uh, Of course, that could just be me, you know, thinking that now, but he was worried. He was, he definitely was. Yeah. And so after he got the diagnosis, what happened? Did he start treatment right away? No. So when he got the diagnosis, they said it's melanoma. What what the process was after that, it was the beginning of summer at that point. And for that whole summer, essentially, it was just waiting for tests to see if it had spread, if it had spread, how far had it spread. So, you know, first we were waiting to see had it spread to any of the major organs. It hadn't. And then uh, we were waiting for a surgery date 
for them to remove, the protocol is to remove um, a lot of the tissue and skin from around where the mole was, even though the biopsy had, since the mole is so small, the biopsy had essentially removed the mole itself. But the protocol is to remove a lot of the skin and tissue from around where the mole is, Mm -hmm. and then also to check his lymph, uh, lymph nodes to see if it had spread to his lymph system. And so that whole summer, we were essentially waiting and everything was good news initially. So we found out that it hadn't spread, the melanoma hadn't spread to any of his organs, which was amazing. Then we had his surgery and the surgery was scary because they removed a lot of tissue from his face and there was a chance that they could nick uh, his facial nerve, which would affect his smile, which is obviously huge but it didn't. The surgery went perfectly. Uh, It wasn't in his lymph nodes. We found out that same day that uh, he could go home. You know, initially they thought he had to stay overnight, but he was so vibrant and so strong. They were like, okay, you can, you can just go. Your vitals look great. And he never took any of the pain meds. So initially everything seemed like it was going really well. Mm -hmm. And we felt like we had sort of dodged a bullet because you hear melanoma also, the initial uh, the initial mole in his cheek, the they call it a tumor. The part that's inside, the part that isn't showing. Mm. It was, I believe, it was five point eight millimeter millimeters deep, which is very very deep for a melanoma. And mm. I remember the the dermatologist saying, "I would be really concerned if it was one millimeter deep." So, and, I, and since that time, I've talked to other people that have melanoma and I, that is a very deep melanoma tumor. So that right, right away was a sign of how aggressive it was, mm-hmm. but the fact that it hadn't spread at all and the surgery went so well. And then after that surgery, we were given a clean bill of health and they said, you know, no treatment necessary. We got it all. His face healed amazingly. His beard grew over the scar. It was easy to sort of forget what had, what had happened and we kind of just went on to live our lives normally. And they said that he needed CT scans once a year after that. Sorry, there was the first one was six months later, and then once a year after that. And I remember at the time being like, hmm, why does he need CT scans once a year for five years if they got everything? Mm-hmm. It hadn't spread. I don't understand that. And the number of times since then I've looked back and been like, why didn't I question that? Why didn't I ask? But at the time I was just like, oh, it must just be them, you know, following their protocol and doing their thing they always do. But Brian's body was so strong that it just fought off that melanoma. And this is just sort of, just to be sure, just to be safe. And you were, you, I mean, you said that at the beginning of this, you were super optimistic. And so like a continuation of your just your personality and also just like how you were handling the situation and handling the stress is just remaining super positive. I think so. Yeah. I mean, I, I have typically been a very positive person in the past. So I think that was a part of it, but also it was, it was the way that the way that Brian was to me, he seemed like this person that he was the kind of person in my mind who would, who would overcome mm-hmm. this really scary diagnosis. And it was the fact that what seemed at the beginning, like when he, when we first got the diagnosis that it was melanoma, we knew how deep it was. I Googled that night, 
5.8 millimeter deep melanoma in a face, Mm -hmm. in the cheek of a man. And I knew it was potentially really, really, really bad. And I acknowledged that. And I was really scared at first, really, really scared. And that whole summer was super scary because we were just waiting and waiting and we had to wait for the surgery. We had to wait for the CT scan. We had to wait for the results of the surgery. So it was a long process. And I wasn't just super positive and, oh, everything's going to be great that whole time. Mm -hmm. I was definitely nervous. But I think once we got that really good news that they had done this huge surgery, nothing, there was no, they found no melanoma in any of the tissue surrounding where the mole had been. They said frequently that would be the first place that it would go to. It, It hadn't gone to the lymph system at all, which is another main place that it will often go to. So I felt like we were in the clear. Yeah, you could breathe a little mm-hmm. bit. Excuse me, at that point. Mm-hmm. And then, and then it just sort of receded. Melanoma receded into the into the background a lot, mm-hmm. and we went on. And we were living our lives, and everything was going okay. And then, another year and a half after that. So this was December of 2018. Mm-hmm. Brian started to have weird symptoms. And at first it was, he was having trouble sleeping. He was having night sweats. He was waking up in the night and just feeling off. He started having weird issues with his eyesight. So I was kind of making fun of him that he was getting old and that he needed glasses for reading because he'd always had perfect eyesight and I have really bad eyesight. So I was like, you're getting old and you're going to need glasses (laughs) because his eyesight was getting blurry when he was reading. And he started having back pain towards the end of December. Those were the main initial symptoms. And I never, ever for a moment thought that it could be the melanoma again. In my mind, the melanoma was gone. Mm -hmm. And it was sort of, it started out kind of subtle. So that first month, just these weird things. And I didn't really connect them in my Mm -hmm. mind. And then right before New Year's, he started feeling really sick, like he had a flu. Mm. And we had planned to have a New Year's party. We canceled the New Year's party. And that night, New Year's Eve, he was just in bed all night. And I remember crawling in beside him just before midnight. And I was so sad because we loved celebrating New Year's together. And he had this flu and Brian never got sick. So it was such a bummer. And we just said we loved each other and we went to sleep. And then as January went on, he just got sicker and sicker and sicker. And it was like a really, really bad flu combined with really, really bad back pain. That was what was going on. And it was just getting worse and worse. And it was so stressful because we had no idea what was happening. And once it really started, it progressed really quickly. So we were waiting to see our doctor. Then the doctor said, do you have a CT scan coming up again? And he said, yeah, I have my yearly one in March. And she was like, I would try to get that a little sooner. And that was sort of the first time where I was like, oh my God, does Mm -hmm. she think that it's the melanoma? Mm. What? And I was so shocked, but still I was like, it's not, it can't be, it's not, it's not. So we had this whole list of things we thought that it could be. And of course, it wasn't any of those things. It was the melanoma. 
And we finally got him in for a CT scan at the very beginning of February. He went in for the CT scan. And a few nights later, we found out that it was melanoma and it was everywhere. What was it like when he got that phone call? Were you with him or were, did he tell you? It was an email. So it was, I think it was maybe even the next day after we'd gone for that CT scan. And he was already really sick. So we were already in crisis mode. We just Mm -hmm. didn't know what was going on. So we were already, he was already home all the time. He already couldn't work. He was already in so much pain. And Brian never took pain meds, but his back was in so much pain. He was taking, I guess, Tylenol back or whatever. And we were home. It was a Thursday night. Our daughter was asleep. And I was researching his symptoms and trying, which I was constantly doing that week, just trying to figure out what could this be that isn't cancer? What mm-hmm. else could it be? I just wanted something that I could say that was going on with him that wasn't cancer. And I remember he was in the living room and he was just like, oh, fuck. And I was like, what? What's wrong? What's wrong? And he was looking at his phone. He was like, it's melanoma. And I was like, what? And he showed me the email. They send you an email and they say, oh, log in to your, you know, UHN account. That's the hospital account that we have here in Toronto. Mm -hmm. And we logged, you know, he had logged in and there were his results. And it was melanoma everywhere. He had seven tumors in his brain. He had, he, the melanoma was in his, in his spine, in his neck, in essentially every major organ. It was everywhere. Mm-hmm. And so I knew, I knew that was really bad because when I back, you know, a year and a half earlier, when I had Googled 5.8 mil- millimeter deep melanoma tumor, I knew stage four melanoma, which is melanoma that's spread to the major organs, even one other organ is really hard to treat. Mm-hmm. Really, really, really hard to treat. And so I knew that was bad, 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 bad. I mean, any type of cancer that spread that extensively in such a short amount of time, you know, it's so aggressive. Mm -hmm. So that it was, that was terrifying. Like that night was terrifying. Yeah. Did what that night, I mean, I know for me, when I found out with my husband that the cancer was everywhere and that's what we were dealing with, I felt like I started grieving that night a lot of the things that I thought were going to happen or were you still, were you still hopeful and optimistic or what was your thought process in that time? I think that I went into shock mm-hmm. in that moment because I, I, I was convinced initially that he would beat it which is kind of crazy <laughs> because I don't know if that's possible. Like I've talked to, I've talked to people I've met now in grief since that time who know a lot about cancer, including an oncology nurse. And she's just like, yeah, he was dead in that moment. Like that's, you don't come back from that. Mm-hmm. So, but I, that's not how I felt. I was, I was like, he's going to beat this. Brian is going to beat this. He's a miracle. He's that kind of guy. He's that person who's going to beat this insane stage four cancer that nobody else beats. 
it's going to be him because he was so healthy and he knew so much about alternative healing and all these things. And he'd done all this research and he changed his diet and he was that kind of person, right? He did all that stuff when the initial cancer hit. And in my mind, I was convinced that's why even though that was such a deep tumor that they, they thought probably had at least spread to the lymph nodes, hadn't. I was convinced it was because of all of those things that he'd done. So again, I was like, we can do it again. We can do it again. It felt like we'd had this miracle once and we could have this miracle again, mm-hmm. even though he was so sick. But honestly, it was bad. Like two nights after we got that diagnosis, I had to take him to the ER because he was in so much pain. And we were, we got the diagnosis on a Thursday night. The doctor called me the next day. He said, come in Monday morning. And that Saturday night, I had to take him into the ER because he was in so much pain. And I don't know if this happened with your husband, but he had ascites. So he had like fluid buildup in his abdomen Mm -hmm. and it basically looked like he was pregnant and we had to go in to have that drained. And now I know that that's a, that's a sign of, you know, end of life kind of thing. Right. But we literally just found out about the cancer. I didn't even know it was cancer 48 hours before that. And I remember bringing him into the hospital and I said, I knew that it was ascites. My dad's a doctor. And he was like, this is what's going on. Mm -hmm. If you want to go get it drained, you can go into the ER. If you don't want to wait until Monday when you go see the doctor. And he was just in so much pain that we were like, let's do it. And when we went in, I remember that even the doctors in the ER were just like, oh my gosh, we're so sorry. Like they just looked at him mm-hmm. and they were like, they looked at his results of his CT scan. They saw the, the spread and they were, I remember this one doctor just looking at me and being like, I'm so sorry. So on the one hand, on the one hand, I was being positive and I thought he can beat this. Brian can beat this. I'm going to, I'm going to figure this out. I'm going to find everything that we can do. I'm going to pour myself into this and we're going to be those people to get through this. But on the other hand, at the same time, I knew that he was dying. And I, I said, actually, even before we knew that it was cancer, I went, a couple of days before we found out it was cancer, I was on a walk with my sister. And I remember saying to her, I can't explain how I know this, but he's dying. I know mm-hmm. he's dying. I can see that he's dying. And she was like, oh no, he's not. Like, of, of course he's not, Mira. Like, you're just, of course you're scared because we don't know what's going on yet. But it's Brian. Like, it's not, he's going to be okay, you know? Mm-hmm. But I knew, I knew. And what was yeah. his, what What did he say during this time? What was his, um, I oh, guess, where was, was he mentally? Disbelief, complete disbelief. Like, I don't even know. I don't even know how you wrap your head around something like that. And he was in so much pain by that point. I don't even know. I don't even know. Honestly, I don't even know. And I, I don't remember a lot from that time. Mm-hmm. I, rem- I remember little bits and pieces of things. I remember sobbing, sitting sitting on our bed with him and just sobbing. And I remember him comforting me and saying, it's going to be okay. We're going to be okay. We, no matter what happens, we'll get through this somehow, no matter what, we'll get through this somehow. And it wasn't even like he was saying, I'm not going to die. Mm -hmm. It was like, he was just saying, somehow we will 
figure this out, whatever that looks like. And it, it wasn't like, it's so, it's, it's so hard to explain. It was just, it was just shock, shock and disbelief. Mm-hmm. And then we were busy. We were busy, busy, busy fighting for his life. And starting that next week, we were in and out of the hospital every day. We were doing tests and more tests and MRIs and brain radiation and, you know, immunotherapy and just, it was just the the downhill. It was so quick. The downhill was so, 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 so quick. And how old was your daughter at this point? She was two, but she turned three, two weeks after he died. So she was, this whole process, by the way, from his diagnosis to him dying was under seven weeks. Oh my goodness. So, mm-hmm, yeah. That's a lot to so process it, in a very short amount of time. Exactly. Exactly. So that's why I'm saying, you know, you're asking what, you know, we didn't have, we didn't have all this time to have these really long conversations about, you know, how he felt and how I felt and what are we going to do and what's the plan? Because it was so quick and Mm -hmm. he was so sick and he was in so much pain and he had seven tumors in his brain. And it was just, it was hard to even get him to the hospital. And yet I had to somehow do that every day. It was those, it was those types of things were really hard. And he was declining before my eyes. He was declining every day. I'd wake up, he'd wake up. He was worse every Mm -hmm. single day. There was never a day when he was even slightly better and none of the treatments made any difference at all. Nothing. Did you have family in town that were helping you? Mm -hmm. My family all live in Toronto and they were hugely helpful. And Brian's mom, who lives in Sudbury, which is four hours north of us, she came down and she stayed with us for some of the time, for at least half the time, I'd say she was living with us. So she was taking care of our daughter so I could take care of him. Yeah. How did you describe, and I know a, a two-year-old, and, and it's very, that's actually exactly, um, oddly, when my husband passed away, my daughter was two and turned three just a month after, uh, a oh, month, wow. about, about the, a little over a month after he passed. So wow. I know um, explaining that to her was, I mean, she's two, she can't understand what was going on. And I tried my best, but she would still, you know, after he passed away, ask for daddy and wonder where daddy is. And, um, what was, and I know for me, that was probably one of the hardest parts of the whole process. What was that like for you? And, and how did you explain what was happening or, or how did you handle that? That was really hard. That is still really, really hard. And I, I was really direct with her right from the beginning. And I had an overwhelming, deeply intuitive feeling that I just had to keep talking to her about it, be really direct, really honest, and just focus on her and just hold her as tight as I could and not to not to try to distract too much, not to try to hand her off to other people too much, just really focus on her. And I was sort of obsessed with her grief at the beginning. Mm -hmm. Her and Brian 
were really, really, really close. And both Brian and I were working parents and both stay-at-home parents. So we were both self-employed. So we had this beautiful life together, almost like a dance between the two of us where you know, he was with her while I was working and I was with her when he was working. And my parents also were with her some days. And it was this, this, this beautiful, this beautiful dance and it just worked out so well. And so she had a lot of one-on-one time with him where he was the primary caregiver and she was really accustomed to that. And it was so quick. And she was sort of with her grandparents and getting all this attention and all this love around the time that he was dying that she never really even understood or got used to the idea that he was dying. And in fact, we didn't know that he was dying until six days before he died. And so it wasn't like we had any time to prepare her. She, I remember she came to the hospital a couple days before he died, maybe about five days before he died. I said, I want Davida to start coming in and spending time with us every day. I want us to be together as a family. And that's when I started telling her what was happening and explaining to her. And there were a few key resources that I was given at the hospital, really simple key resources that I just inhaled and that I that really helped me, you know, these things that I'm sure you know about being really direct and um, being uh, being really, really ta- talking about the tangible elements of his body is dying. That mm-hmm. means that you won't be able to see him anymore. You won't be able to hear him. You won't be able to touch him ever again. And our body is part of who we are, but then we also have our soul and our soul I mean, a lot of the resources said you can, and you can kind of go from there wherever you want. Cause it's like, mm-hmm. you know, whatever you believe kind of thing. But right from the beginning, I was like, we have a soul and we have a body and dad's body doesn't work anymore. He has cancer. And so his body is, is dying. His body will die. This is what your body is. Your body won't be there. His body won't be there anymore ever again, but his soul will. And that's who we really are. Mm-hmm. And we can still love, we can still connect, we can still talk to each other, but we can't hear his voice in the way that we used to. And so from the beginning, I was just, I had a very strong feeling and I have never, ever, ever doubted that feeling or strayed from that feeling. So I've been very consistent from the start about that. And yeah, it was, it was hard, but you know, interestingly enough, she never asked for him. She, she, she understood somehow from the very beginning, which is, which is really interesting because what, what you said about your daughter still asking, I hear that all the time and I'm not sure why Davida never did, but right from the beginning, she understood that his body was dead and that we would never, we would never see that body again. That's so interesting. Yeah. Some kids are just old souls. They just know so much, you know, let's talk about if it's okay with you the day of his passing. Yeah, for sure. You can ask me anything. I honestly don't know. I'll just tell you if there's anything that I don't want to talk about. Yeah. And, and I, and that's what the, the article, um, the piece that I read about Mm -hmm. his passing and it, I could relate 
so, so much to it. Um, and why, why don't you tell us a bit about that day and, and did you know it was going to be that day? I had a feeling. I had a feeling it was going to be that day, but I wasn't sure. So the way that it happened for Brian was, you know, they were, the doctors were, we had this one main doctor. We had a few doctors, but we, we had this one main doctor and he was so sweet and he loved Brian. He, Brian was a musician and this doctor was a huge music lover and he just, we connected with him and he was really hopeful um, about the treatments that he was offering us. And even though the, the spread was so extensive, it wasn't like they were, I remember the first day we went in to see him, I thought he was going to say, there's nothing we can do, but he didn't. He was really positive and we were trying and trying all these treatments, but I could see they weren't working. I mean, we could see right from the first treatment that it wasn't working and it wasn't so, so about two weeks before Brian died, I had to bring him in because he wasn't doing well at all. He was really in, in so much pain still and it wasn't being managed at home. And they convinced him to stay in hospital at that point because his calcium levels were off and his potassium levels were, were off. And they said, just let's just we'll bring you into the hospital and we'll just get that under control. But the truth is he was never discharged after that. And they were still trying, you know, and we were at one point we were waiting to see if he had this one very specific mutation called the BRAF mutation. Mm -hmm. And if you have it, when you have melanoma, there's other options for treatment. Mm -hmm. And now I understand that even if he had been BRAF positive and he had been able to have those other treatments, it likely would have only extended his life by about a year. Mm -hmm. And it would have been a really hard because he would have gotten better if it worked and then he would have declined again. Mm -hmm. And we would have been through everything again the same a year later. So, I mean, in a way, what happened, nothing about it is okay, but when we found out that he was not BRAF positive, that was the moment when we knew that was kind of our last chance. He clearly wasn't responding to the immunotherapy. And although they initially tried to kind of make it sound like there were all these options and backup plans, the truth was there wasn't really not at that point, not with how aggressive the melanoma was. He was so sick. And so about six days before he died, the doctor came and saw us and said, we got the results. He is not BRAF positive. So we're looking at end of life care now and it could be really quick. And, and was he, it was like, was mm -hmm. he like coherent at this time? Did he sort of, sort of, sort of. Okay. he was coherent enough that we had our wills done. So the lawyers felt the lawyers and the doctors felt that he was coherent enough to for us to do our wills because we hadn't done them. And so we did them in the hospital and he, yes, he was coherent, but he was on a lot of pain meds and he was in and out of consciousness. So that was sort of the way it was until the end. So he'd have these 
phases when he would be out and sort of less lucid and then he would come back and he would be really lucid and we'd have these really amazing conversations sometimes for five minutes sometimes for an hour it often seemed to happen when it was just the two of us and sometimes people would come see him and he just was totally out of it the whole time but it really seemed like he was in and out that's what it seemed like he was coming back and he was here and then he was go- <clears throat> excuse me and then he was gone so he would come back and then he was gone and the whole last six days once we knew that he was dying that's what it was like mm-hmm. and we had some friends come and see us we had some family come and see us but i just wanted to be alone with him all the time and whenever people were around us i would feel antsy I just wanted it to be the two of us. And I had this overwhelming sense that that's what he wanted too. Mm-hmm. But I would, and it was hard because sometimes I'd ask him, oh, so-and-so wants to come see you. Is that okay? And sometimes he just wouldn't answer me. <laughs> like he just wouldn't say anything. Yeah. And so yeah. it was so hard because I had to kind of navigate who could come, who couldn't come. Meanwhile, I was in complete shock and wasn't eating, wasn't sleeping. You know, any free moment I had, I was thinking about our daughter and oh, how am I going to navigate this with her, wanting her to have time with him. It's so, a lot. Uh, it's can, a lot, yeah. Can I ask you, what was your last conversation with him? What were what was that about? What did he say? So the last the last night that he was alive, Everybody left. So I think his family, his brother and his mom were the last to leave and they they left. And I remember his mom was so worried about me and she was like, do you want me to stay with you? Like, it could be tonight. Are you okay being alone? And I was like, yes, definitely. I'm okay being alone for sure. And I just, I wanted to be alone with him. I wasn't scared of him dying at all for some strange reason. I just wanted it to be the two of us. To me, it felt like this, our last intimate spiritual moment together. And I had this feeling that I just, I wanted to create his death, a death experience for us, which is so bizarre that I felt that way. I don't know where that feeling came from or how I had that feeling it reminded me so much of the way it was when our daughter was born and he had sort of done that for me. So he had created this really beautiful space in our home where I gave birth to our daughter and Mm -hmm. surprised me. And it was so beautiful. And I had this feeling that I want to do the same thing. So I must have somehow known it was going to be that night because I got my sister to go to our apartment and get a bunch of our really, really special items and bring them there. And I transformed his hospital room into like an I don't even know like a a homey magical sanctuary for him to make that final journey and I wanted to bring him home but the doctor said there's a really good chance that he'll die in the ambulance Mm -hmm. and I didn't want that so I said okay we're gonna bring home here and that last night he was in and out and I don't, rem- I don't know if there were, you know, 
is there one specific conversation? I'm not sure, but he would kind of come in and out of consciousness and just say things to me. And I remember at one point he, he was like, Oh, Mira, 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 don't, don't forget. Don't forget. You have to keep drinking your lemon water in the morning when you wake up. Okay. Don't forget about that. And I was like, okay, I won't forget. And then he kind of go out again mm-hmm. and then he'd come back. <laughs> he'd come back in and it almost felt like he was going out of his body and coming back in. He'd come back in and he'd say, oh, Mira, 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 you really make the best. I was really into making plantain bread at the time. <laughs> mm, that sounds delicious. <laughs> I've never had plantain bread. It's really good. And I was really, I, it's, I was really into baking without grains at the time, mm-hmm. right before he got sick. And so I was experimenting with all these different ways. And he said, remember your plantain bread? You have to keep making it. It's so good. Davida loves it so much. You have to keep making it. So it's things like this really sweet things like that, that he would say when he kind of would come back in. And so some, some of the things that he would say were, were those kinds, he was kind of a caretaker and a nurturer at heart, Brian. And so a lot of it was sort of things like that, like, don't forget to take care of yourself and don't forget about this thing that you love and that thing that you love. And at one point he, he, and I think I write about this in the article that you were mentioning, he said, he woke up and he said, am I dying? And I was like, yeah, yeah, Brian, you're dying. And he was like, are you going to be here when I die? And I, I said, yeah, I'm going to be here. Like, I'm not going anywhere. And he was like, Okay. And then he was like, are you going to still be here after I die? And I remember that moment. I was just like, yeah. And that's crazy. Because when you're so connected to somebody, it's like, oh, my God, like you're dying, but I'm still going to be here. And that's something that still hits me all the time, especially being so young. It's like, I can still be here for a long time, you know? Right. And, and he's, he's not in that same way. And it was sort of that moment of just that realization hitting us both, you know, because mm-hmm. it was so shocking. It was so sudden. Everything was so quick. And did you, I mean, I know for me, um, my husband died nine months after diagnosis, but it kind of went away and then came back. And when it mm-hmm. came back, it was really quickly as well. It was about two months and um, because of the amount of pain that he was in, it was almost a relief to some extent. Of course, you know, I didn't want him to die, but I remember sitting there and knowing that he was dying and thinking, thank God he doesn't have to be in pain anymore because mm-hmm. the pain was just insane. Like I couldn't imagine being in that much pain. I, I honestly, I am only recently have only recently allowed myself to think about the pain that he was in. Mm -hmm. And it's something that his mother talked about a lot and has talked about a lot. Her and I are really close and we talk about grief all the time. I'm actually in her house right now. We talk about Brian all the time. And that's something that for her was a huge part was the pain. And of course it's her, it's her baby, right? It's that was something that for her was so hard, but I don't even know that I let myself acknowledge the pain, the epic pain that he must have been in to have cancer that extent, you know, and in your spine and your neck to that extent, it was in his 
in his shoulders, in his hips, mm-hmm. you know, just he could barely walk because he could barely walk even when he was first diagnosed mm-hmm. because there was so much in his bones. And I know the bone pain is really bad, but I didn't, I didn't really let myself think about it. Like I, I, I truly, I truly was in shock and not thinking about it, but I do relate to that feeling. It almost was, I don't want to say relief, but a release when he died because it wasn't, it was just that, that sort of, and I'm sure you know this, it's this sort of in between land of, we're not really quite a part of the living right now, but he's not dead. And it's just this sort of mystical land in between, but with so much, with so much energy and sadness and it's so heavy and it's, it's, you're sort of just waiting for the inevitable mm-hmm. and I knew it was going to happen. And for us, it was quick, right? So we didn't have this extended, extended, extended amount of time where he was just suffering, 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 suffering. It was, it was all pretty quick, but yeah, those last few days for sure, you're just, you're waiting, right? It's, it's, it felt so similar to my labor. My labor was long Mm -hmm. and it was that you're sort of just, it'll, it'll, with my labor, it was the same. It would, things would ramp up and it's like, okay, things are happening. And then they would calm down and they would ramp up and then calm down. And that's how it was when he was dying too. It's like, things seemed to be, he seemed to be progressing on his journey and it seemed like he was getting closer to leaving his body. And then he would just be like right back in there and he'd be like, Oh Mira, could you give me some food? I want some food. And, you know, meanwhile he has barely eaten in a few days now, you know, Mm -hmm. and I was like, ah, you don't, you don't need to eat. You don't Mm -hmm. need to eat honey. It's okay. You know, but he was like, but maybe it'll make a difference. Maybe it'll make a difference. And then he would just kind of pass out again, you know? So Mm -hmm. There was definitely a, a feeling of release at the end. And that last night, um, we were, it was just the two of us, as I mentioned, and we were having these conversations. And a lot of the time, I was just sitting with him, crying and telling him how much I loved him. And I had read this article that day. I think I Googled, you know what to do when someone is dying (laughs) something like that. (laughs) And this article, it was really helpful. Actually. It was like, these are the top five things that somebody wants to hear when they're dying. And I just kind of use that as a starting point and just rift. Like I just talked and talked and talked and I don't even remember all of them right now, but one of them was like, People want to know that you're going to be, that the people they love are going to be okay. They want to know that their life had purpose and had meaning. They want to know that they've be, they're being forgiven for things that might've been challenging things between them and other people. And I just kind of took these things and just talked and just talked and talked and talked and talked and talked. And then I remember at one point I was like, okay, like I've been talking for hours now. He's not listening. You know, he's totally out of it. I should just, you know, stop and get some rest. And I kind of stopped and he opened his eyes and he was like, well, don't stop. <laughs> and I was like, okay, okay, I will. I will. Okay. I did. I kept going and I told him that I would continue to talk to our daughter Davida about him all the time and he would you know remain a big part of our life and that we would stay connected to him and I just kept talking and talking and eventually 
I, I had this overwhelming feeling and of course I know Brian so well and I knew that he was going to die when it was just the two of us. And I knew that's what he would want. And I also had a feeling that he would want to do it on his own time in his own way and maybe with me there, but not necessarily staring at him. And so I actually, I'd set up a little bed right beside him. Uh, the the nurses had helped me sort of set up a bed on a, a lounge chair that was kind of at the same level as his bed. And I pushed it right beside his bed. So I was kind of half on this lounge chair and I had my legs kind of on his bed and we were holding hands and I was right beside him and our heads right beside each other. And I was like, I love you. He said, I love you too. And then I said, let's, you know, let's try to get some sleep. And I closed my eyes and actually fell asleep. And I woke up about two hours later and I opened my eyes and I was like, he just died. And I just had this feeling like, I don't know if I was dreaming about it or something. I felt something and I opened my eyes and I looked over at him and he was dead. So Mm -hmm. that's how it happened. And I just kind of stayed with him and sat with him and I closed his eyes and I, I don't even know what I did. Talked to him, cried for another hour and nobody interrupted us. The door was closed. Um, I didn't tell anybody. And to this day, when I tell people that they're like, you didn't tell anyone, like you didn't go out and tell the doctors, you didn't tell the nurse, like you didn't do any of that stuff. There's no urgency. (laughs) There's no, exactly. But everybody does. Mm -hmm. Everybody does. And when I, when I went to tell the nurse and I, you know, I, I had had my hour or whatever it was. And I was like, okay, I'm ready now. And I went out and I just kind of you know, I was in my PJs and my slippers and I just padded out. It's the middle of the night and I found our nurse and I was like, hey, Calvin. He's like, hey, how's it going? I was like, Brian's dead. And he was like, oh my goodness, he, he is? When did, it, when did it happen? And I was like, a little over an hour ago, I think. He's like, you didn't come get me. Like, he was so shocked. I was like, mm. no. You know, and once, once he came in there, you know, he, it became so clinical. He did all these tests to make sure Brian, I'm like, dude, he's dead. Like, come on. You know, like, I know he's dead. (laughs) Like he's obviously dead. Um, but he did all these tests and then they kind of, I don't know, they sort of like prepared his body in this way for viewing that just Mm -hmm. made it look so unnatural. And it just, the spell for me was broken at that point. And it wasn't, it wasn't him anymore. Mm -hmm. And it it wasn't him, you know, it wasn't him when he was dead. It wasn't him, but I could feel it was almost like his spirit was around me and filling the room. But once all of that happened and someone else was there, it just, it felt like the spell was broken. So when you say you felt something, did you actually feel something when he passed away? I don't know. I just know that I woke up with a start and Mm -hmm. I opened my eyes and I said to myself, he just died. That's all I remember. And when you say his spirit, and I only say this because I felt the same way and I like it, his spirit was around. And for me, it felt almost like this kind of odd coldness breeze. I don't know how to describe it, but it's like almost just like feeling and and it wasn't like a physical, it was just almost like in the back of my head. Like, you know how you get a chill and it's like in your brain. I don't know how to describe it. And so what did it feel like for you when you just kind of felt like he was there? It was like a tingling in my body and 
I know what you mean by the a coldness. I do know what you mean by that. So for me, it was a it was a sort of a tingling in my body, as if my body was almost disconnected from me, but at the same time had this. It was almost like a coldness and a warmth at the same time, and my like my body was just. It was in my body. It was a feeling in my body. And it was just a feeling of magic all around me. Like I was connecting to something in a way that I only ever felt when I was giving birth. That's the only other time that I felt that sort of a connection to something greater. But in terms of a physical feeling, for me, it was a tingling sensation Mm -hmm. in my body. Like there was something, and I was really close to him. I was sort of touching him and I lay on top of him for a while, which was amazing because I hadn't been able to actually really touch him very much because for him with his pain, it was like his body was on fire. And so I am such a physical person and I always wanted to be cuddling and lying on his chest. And it had been a while since I'd been able to do that because he'd been in a lot of pain and and the cancer was also in the in his ribs a lot. And so when he died, I was like, oh my gosh, I can actually just lie with him. And so I was lying on top of him and it felt like there was this sort of tingling, pulsing energy around both of us. Like Mm -hmm. it was surrounding me and him and extending out and filling the room. And it almost like I it was almost like I could see colors as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, kind of coming out of us, like um, sort of like purples and blues and greens, kind of filling the room from us, uh, but but subtle, you know, not <laughs> not anything too extreme. But I could, it was it was like I could see, feel, sense a, another another sense other than the senses, the physical senses that we are used to feeling. That is so incredible. Um, I I say all the time, I was also laying in bed with my husband when he passed away. And I said, I felt him leave his body and people asked me what that felt like. And I said, it was like a tingling, almost like my entire body fell asleep. It was like Mm -hmm. a very weird tingling feeling. And I keep, I ask people that and it's the same description. Everyone says it's tingling. And I I just find that so interesting and so beautiful too. um, That it, and I said, it's just love felt filled the room. I don't know how to describe it other than this immense exactly. feeling of love and peace. Exactly. Exactly. And that's why I think I didn't, I didn't want to break that spell. It, to me, it didn't feel like an emergency or something to call everyone in. I wasn't scared. It was just, it was amazing. Like, I feel like that moment was a gift to me in terms of feeling a connection to something greater. Of course, I was devastated Mm -hmm. and still am devastated that Brian died and would never trade that moment, that awareness, everything that I've learned and how I've grown for his death. I would never trade that, but it's, you can't, you can't not acknowledge that. I mean, it is, it is a gift to touch the divine in that way, you know, and, and just feel some because we spend all this time in our bodies and wondering, you know, what is there after death? What else? What else is there out there? And it's something we all 
we all think about on some level. And even if we don't believe, it's still something we don't believe in, right? It's, mm-hmm. it's something we all think about at some point in our lives. So to feel that type of a undeniable connection is such a gift. And then to be able to live your life with that knowledge is a gift for sure. Do you feel like going through what you have been through has made you more present in your life right now? Yes and no. <laughs> so I, I'm i so hesitant to say, to, to fall on either side of the fence too much because yes, for sure, in certain ways. And I believe that as more time passes, that will become more and more a part of my life. And uh, yes, for sure. Yes, I am more present. I, I, appreciate things more. I feel more gratitude, all of that. But at the same time, there are so many moments when I'm just devastatingly, heartbreakingly sad and don't even care about any of that. And I think that it's important to acknowledge, for me at least, it's really important to acknowledge that and let myself feel that. And I think because I used to be such a positive person, I'm I'm nervous. I get nervous when I start to feel too too much of that Oh, but this is a gift, and oh, I, I, I appreciate everything so much more now. I'm capable of greater love now. All of that. I'm hesitant of that because I also feel like, I, I, it's important to acknowledge just the devastation and the sadness of it too, and the huge, huge loss too. So, especially in the first year, yes, there were some moments of that, but there were also, and into the second year, honestly, it's been, oh, it's been almost 17 months now. Mm. And even, you know, even now for sure, there's still moments when none of that even matters to me. And I'm just so, so heartbreakingly sad, heartbreakingly sad about it. Yeah. Sorry if that didn't answer your question. No, 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 that was, that was a good answer. And I think it's so important too, because I feel a lot of people feel this pressure to, um, especially as time goes on to yes. Be, like, oh, well, you know, there's so much positive that can't, comes out of loss and, you know, uh, post-traumatic growth and make it all yeah. this, um, wrap it up with a neat little bow. And I think yeah. uh, there are days and I think that that's just a constant. I don't, I don't think it gets better over time. I think I always say grief never gets better over time. It gets different and you're mm-hmm. still going to have days where it's ugly and you get angry or you get very sad and i think mm-hmm. it's great that you acknowledge that you you ha- you will always have both sides of that coin and that's totally normal and okay mm-hmm. absolutely and what what are the days or do you notice a pattern of days that you have a really much tougher time than others <sighs> do i notice a pattern Oh, I'm, I'm not sure. I mean, there are there are certain things that seem to make it better. And one of them for me is being in nature. So that's a huge one for me when I am around lots of people, especially people from our life before, I'm not doing well. And one of the most triggering things for me to this day is our friends from before people who we connected with as a couple, people who we had kids around the same time as, who now have all had their second kid. 
And that to me is so hard because the basis of our friendship was often built in these dynamics that just no longer apply to me. And that, so that makes it harder. And then what's better for me so far has been being in new environments, being in nature, being connected to places that feed my soul, that feel like a slower pace where I can just do me, focus on our daughter, write about my grief and feel my grief and figure my own way out of this. I I feel worse when I feel I'm around people that I feel pressured by to be back to who I was before. And I know a lot of people are grieving. And I don't know if you felt this way, but I feel like a lot of people in our lives are grieving the loss of me from before, just as much as they're grieving the loss of Brian, because I am not the person I was before, and I'm not going to be the person that I was from before. And I've chosen to not cover up my grief, not to go out and just sort of pretend I'm fine for everyone else. Because to me, that feels inauthentic. And that's just a part of my personality is that it's really hard for me to not just authentically be who I am in every moment. And I'm also okay with just, you know, being on my own or having those few people in my life who I feel really understand it and accept me unconditionally the way that I am now. And have given me the space and the time to become who it is that I'm going to become going through this huge devastating loss. So I don't know I don't know exactly yeah it's hard certain certain things seem to make it a little bit easier and certain things seem to make it harder but at the same time I don't mind putting myself in situations that are hard because that sort of it's almost like a compass for me in terms of rebuilding my life. Mm-hmm. then I'm able to see, okay, I tried that. I did that. It didn't feel right. It didn't feel good. It actually made me feel worse. So mm-hmm. maybe I'm not going to do that anymore. Yeah. Um, and I think um, you hit the nail on the head as far as uh, people grieving who you were before. I lost some friends along the way or you know, yeah. just certain relationships didn't fit the same way as they did yeah. before. And yeah. I think um, it's important for someone who have has lost someone, especially a, a spouse or a child, to give them that space to make that decision and don't take it personally if mm-hmm. they, you know, need to back off for a while or, you know, just kind of have have their space to heal. Um, so that's that was really uh, I'm glad you brought that up. Let's rewind just a little bit because I feel mm-hmm. like a lot of people, um, especially that listen to the podcast, are in that first couple days or mm-hmm. weeks after the loss what were some things that you did during or that other people did to help support you that you felt were really helpful and if you remember i know for me i don't even remember the first couple of days but um what are some things that helped you i know what you mean there are so many parts of that time that are just completely i've blacked them out and i don't remember them But for me, the things that helped me early on were being with my daughter. That was a huge one. I know a lot of of young widows and widowers feel completely overwhelmed by parenting and want a lot of help at the beginning. I went in the opposite direction. I was like, get out of my house, leave me alone. 
I need to be with my daughter. I want to connect with her. And I just, she was my lifeline. Honestly, she was my lifeline. And I just, every day I just thought, okay, we're just going to connect to each other. Like that's the most important thing right now. We've been through this huge trauma. We just need to connect and keep it really simple, 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 simple. And I didn't put any pressure on myself. For me, I get really, really stressed if I have, especially in grief, it's just been exaggerated. If I feel like I have too many commitments or things I have to do or places I have to be at a certain time, I just need simplicity, especially in grief. And so I just sort of cleared everything away except for me and her. So that was the first thing. The second thing that really, really helped me was writing. And I started writing shortly after. I mean, when Brian was dying, I wrote like crazy. I had a journal with me the whole time he was in the hospital, the whole time he was dying. I was writing down things he said. I was writing down things I was thinking. It was like, I just needed to write, needed to write. I filled an entire journal just in the last week of his life. And it just continued after he died. And I just wanted to write all the time. And it just felt like a huge release. So I'd have all these feelings inside me and then I'd write them and I'd feel like my nervous system was calm again for a little bit. And then something else would happen. I just need to write again. And then again, it would kind of calm me. And I started sharing my writing on Instagram pretty shortly after he died. And I don't really even know why I did it because I was not a huge Instagram person before I had Instagram, but I didn't use it that much. And I remember the, I think one of the first things that I really wrote about was a few days after he died, I said, okay, Davida, let's get out of the house. Let's go for a walk. It was a beautiful sunny day. We hadn't left the house at all. And we lived beside this really big park in Toronto with um, a forest trail. And we went, you know, I got her out the door and we were entering the forest. We were literally entering the trees and trees to Brian were really, really important. He was building a log cabin using only hand tools in Northern Ontario. So, uh, trees are a huge part of his life. Um, Really, really, you know, huge importance to him. So we were entering the trees and all of a sudden my phone rang and I picked it up and I'd forgotten that I had asked the funeral home to call me when he was being cremated at the moment so I could light a candle or, you know, somehow acknowledge. And in that moment, as we entered the trees, they called me and they said, this is the moment when he's being cremated. And I was like, this is amazing. And we just walked into the trees and we sat down in the sunshine and we were talking about him and his, you know, how much we loved his body and how thankful we were for that body. And my daughter, my daughter was like, dad is everywhere. He's in the trees. He's in the sun. Like right away she got it. It was so interesting. And we were hugging trees because he, he always loved to hug trees. And she's like, he taught me how to hug trees. And then I came home from that and I was just like, I want to write about this. Like, that was amazing. I need to write about it. And I wrote about it and I posted it on Instagram. And that it's like I was hooked or something. Mm-hmm. It just felt like something tangible I could do with this horrible experience that I was just completely adrift and afloat in my life. It's like, this is something I can do. And that's how, and then that was writing has been sort of this anchor 
when Brian died, that's what I kept repeating. I was like, I've lost my anchor. I've lost my anchor. I've lost my anchor. I just don't have an anchor anymore. And that writing kind of became my anchor. And so I've just continued writing and I write, I still write all the time on Instagram and I, I definitely need to get a blog going and some other sort of place to write more. But uh, for now it's, it's been Instagram simply because it required no work. I already had an Instagram account. It's an easy thing to do. People can find you. You know, I have all these grievers and widows that, that follow me on Instagram now and it's forming a bit of a community of people who are going through grief and loss and that it helps me so much every time somebody's like, your writing got me through today. Or when, I, when I'm having a hard day, I go and I read your writing and it makes me feel connected. And you've, you've found a way to, to use words to articulate the way I feel. I didn't even know I might have felt that way. And that to me is something, one of the few things that gives my life purpose now and that makes me feel like I can contribute something to the world. So even from very, very early on, but, but even now, that has become a huge thing for me. So I think, I think finding a creative outlet or a way, some sort of way of processing all of those emotions is so key. So, so key. I love your writing. I, Thank you. I love to write too. And that's really what has, I wrote a lot about um, losing my husband and then losing my daughter. And that was really the thing that kind of helped me process through a lot of those really complex emotions um, that you experience yeah. through grief. And I think it's so therapeutic and I love your voice. Your voice is just like, it comes through. Like even before we talked on here on the podcast, I like <laughs> knew exactly what you're going to sound like. You have this really unique <laughs> ability to, um, it's, it's a very unique voice and it's, it really resonated with me. A lot of what you said um, about his death and how it was beautiful. And I, that's always how I described, um, Tommy's death as I said, Oh, it was, it was a beautiful death. It was gorgeous and it was beautiful yeah. in so many ways. Yeah. And so I, and I know a lot of people, um, who have said the same. And so I will be sharing, um, your Instagram and the particular article. I will have that on my site. So for people who are listening or like, I want to read, um, it will be on <laughs> gooddaysbaddays.show. Um, if you want to go on there and if you click episodes, um, you can go to Mira's episode and I will have the link uh, to her Instagram and also the article that I have been referring to through the podcast. And so how do you honor Brian now, either just on your own, like with yourself and then also with your daughter? Well, mainly or one of the main ways for sure is continually through my writing that is a way that I, I feel connected to him. I feel like I can honor him and share who he was, what he meant to me, how much our relationship and our connection continually impacts me, how much the grief has impacted me. All of that, feel it feels, writing feels like a really main way that I honor him. Other ways are through just talking about him all the time. So my daughter and I talk about him a lot and I am super open to, I try to make it really clear that I'm open to her talking about him and whatever she wants to about grief and loss or just who he was, their relationship, like just anytime that's an open door. And 
we talk about him a lot together and she talks about her connection with him. She talks about seeing him and hearing him still, which is really cool. Kids are so open and I really try to just keep that light burning in her so that she knows that that's never something to be shushed or that she can't express that. I want her to know that I'm always going to be a safe place for her to express anything. So that's another huge way is just through continually talking about him all the time. I spend a lot of time with his family. So I'm really, really close to his mom, as I mentioned, and I feel a really strong connection to where he grew up, which is in Northern Ontario. It's basically where we've been for the majority of the summer. Mm -hmm. So that's another way I think is that And it's not even like I thought, oh, how do I honor him? I'm going to spend tons of time with his family. It's truly just following my intuition and my feeling is I want to connect to his family, to the people that he comes from. I feel this really, this deep sense of peace when I'm with them that I don't feel any other time. And I'd say just being really authentically who I am there's a lot of fear, I think, when you go through such a traumatic loss young that, you know, you have to cover it up or you have to, you know, there's only so much you can really talk about your grief or people are going to be like, oh, screw her. You know, I don't want a friend like that. Mm-hmm. And so I think there's a lot of fear around being yourself. And I know so many young widows and widowers or people who have gone through some sort of, uh, some sort of traumatic loss young where there's this this urgency to get back to normal, to get back to work, to get back to life from before. You know, grieve on your own, but then you gotta, you gotta. Um, I remember talking to this one widow really early on, and she was like, you know, I gave myself a month, but then you gotta, you gotta pull on your big girl pants again. And I remember that statement, and I remember just being like, I don't feel that way. Like I feel like I need to authentically just be who I am, and the people who connect to that will want to be there with me. And it might be a lot less. It is a lot less. I have a lot less people I see, you know, on a regular basis, but I have, I formed, I am forming and have formed these really, really, really close relationships with people who do want to still be part of my life and who love the person that I've become and am becoming. And so that I think is another huge thing for me is just being really being authentically who I am. That is beautiful. And I think it's it's something that a lot of people need to hear, especially with young widowers and, and widows is, you know, mm-hmm. yeah, it's it's almost like you are expected to kind of jump back and <laughs> jump back and, sure. and be who you were. And, you know, you're allowed to be sad for X amount of time. Uh, and if you're not, if you're sad past that, or if you're not sad enough time, uh, then, you know, it's just so, There's so it's much judgment. So much. And I think the way I'm doing it is very much my way of doing it. And I also try to be really open to the fact that everybody grieves in their own way and there's no right way, there's no wrong way. This is what works for me. But for some people, that doesn't work for them. And, you know, it helps to get back to to life that feels grounding that fe- they feel like they can navigate their grief within the stability of their life from before for me that wasn't what felt right but i know for others maybe that does so 
I don't want to, I don't want to be judgmental of, of other people, but I do, I do think it's true that some of that feeling of needing to get back often comes from a feeling of, I will be rejected if I am truly authentically myself right now, because we live in a society that doesn't acknowledge and is not comfortable with grief. Mm -hmm. And that is undeniably true. And that pressure exists. And there are people in my life who I know want to be there for me and say they want to be there for me and they accept who I am now and they want to, they want to, they want to, but in reality, they can't. And it, it really takes a certain, I think it takes a really certain special kind of person to be really close to somebody who's truly grieving a traumatic loss, especially in the early days. Absolutely. Especially in the early days. And I had a few friends who were really incredible and just were there for me through everything and, you know, bore a lot of the wrath at the beginning, I think, because there's so much anger involved in sudden traumatic loss. And there's so many emotions that aren't pretty. And there's so much that's, that's really hard on the people around us. Mm-hmm. And I am like forever loyal to the few friends who were like, I'm here for you no matter what. There's literally nothing you can say that will scare me off. I will be till my dying day would do anything for those people because that's just the most beautiful, beautiful friendship that you can have. So moving forward, where, what do you hope say? I know it's hard to, (laughs) to, I mean, I feel like it's like after you've been through a loss that was so quick and so shocking, you're like, well, I don't make plans anymore. Um, Maybe that's just me, but I'm like, I don't know. But (laughs) um, me too. (laughs) So what, but what do you, what do you hope? for the next chapter of your life? Oh my goodness. What do I hope? I hope that I'm able to continue to be who I am through this loss, to navigate it. I, I hope that I don't kind of, I don't want to say give in, but I hope I don't give up on the process. I guess, because it's hard. It's really hard as time continues to go on and there's more and more pressure. And for me, I, I think, I think uh, it's an extreme situation in that I have felt this urge to change everything in my life from Brian dying. So it's literally like starting from square one with a child while grieving. So I have... I don't even know if I want to continue living in the same city where I grew up, where we fell in love, where we built our life, where I built my company. I don't know if I want to keep working with my company in the same capacity. I still love my work from before, but I haven't really, you know, dove back in um, right. You know, even now I'm still, I'm still just sort of working from afar little in little bits here and there I don't I don't really know exactly what the future holds so it's really really hard. I know that I want to continue to authentically grieve like that's number 1. I want to keep writing. I would love to do something more with my writing. That's something that I have been feeling for a while and I want to somehow incorporate that into my life in a more solid, meaningful way. I want to, 
I want to be able to build my life up again in a way that feels like it aligns with who I am now, everything I've been through. A friend of mine who is also a widow, we often talk about this. It's like losing your spouse young or going through some sort of really traumatic loss. It just shakes everything up, which is horrible, horrible, horrible. But at the same time, it like it flattens everything. It's like it's like a bomb is dropped and the ground is flat and you can build that up again however you want. And that's actually really liberating too because there's things about my life but from before looking back on now I'm like, hmm, did I really was did that really make me happy? Was I really doing that for the right reasons? And so for myself moving forward, I think I would love to try to be more intentional and to really build a life that feels really aligned with who I am, not what other people want me to be, who other people want me to be, what other people want me to do, what would make them comfortable, but what would really feel right for me and my daughter. So that's something I would really want for myself moving forward. That's so great. I, I, it's so interesting you say that too. I always describe the time after uh, losing Tommy as I felt like a, almost like a teenager again. I'm like, who yeah. am I? Who am I? Yeah. What do I do? Um, it's that weird, it's like second adolescence is kind of how I felt. I felt just like this I weird- I totally feel the same way. <laughs> yeah. It's like- um, I feel like I have to discover who I am again. Like this is who I was. And um, it is, it's a weird, it's terrifying. And it's also freeing because you're like, I can, I can be anything. I have lots of opportunities. And um, at the same time, you're like, oh, I have to, like you said, it's like a bomb uh, being dropped. Uh, Change is very messy. And um, yeah, I I think that's great. For me, at least my, it felt like my, identity was shattered because Mm -hmm. so much of my identity was bound up in my relationship to Brian. You know, my primary, my, my identity was, was partner to him. And of course a mother as well. Those were the most important things. And it felt like when he died, everything changed. I feel like people treat me, everyone treats me differently. My status has changed. It's like all of a sudden people think they can tell me what to do more. Mm -hmm. And to me, that just seems ridiculous because I'm like, guys, I've been through something you don't have any idea about, and you've never had to survive something like this. If anything, I should be given more respect to make my own decisions and do my own things, but it's the opposite. It's people. And I think it comes partly from a place of love, but also fear. A lot of people in my life are scared for what's going to happen to me and have tried to control me and give me advice. Or, you know, a lot of people want my life to be tied up again in a nice bow. And, you know, that's just not the way that it's, it's happened for me. Of course, sometimes I want that too. It's hard living with instability and things haven't really been I haven't figured out a lot of things about how I'm going to live my life. So that's difficult. But uh, the identity shift, I think, was a huge one, was a huge, huge one for me. And I did feel like a teenager. I completely agree. I've, I've said that before. Mm-hmm. It's, it's very bizarre. It was a very weird time for me. I mean, I feel like I almost am still in there. I'm like, what do I want to do when I grow up? I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
But also some of the positive, like I remember being a teenager and being so creative and having all these spiritual questions and writing so much in my journal and dreaming about what I wanted to do. So all of those more positive things about being a teenager also kind of apply to my life now as well. And just being more impulsive, which for me, I'm a very grounded or have traditionally been a very grounded kind of stable person. So for me, having a bit of impulsivity and, you know, packing my daughter and I up and going in a car and driving north. And that's good for me. Like that feels good for my soul right now. And so it's a lot of those things about being an adolescent that, that actually have been really amazing too. That's incredible. I think it's so cool to just, you know, have, and I, I agree. It's like that impulsiveness. I was the same way. I was very, I was the stable um, kind of responsible one, especially in our marriage. And I was the yeah, the very like type A and it's mm-hmm. what I've noticed. And I don't know if you've noticed this over the last couple of years, but I've completely almost like changed and took on a lot of yes. the attributes that I loved yes. about Tommy. I feel exactly the same. I was literally thinking that when you were saying that, I was like, I bet you that's what happened to her. Cause that's what happened to me too. Totally. And, and I, I think about it in, um, Whenever I I uh, started a new relationship with my now husband, it's really interesting because he is my current husband is a lot like how I used to be, yeah. And it's it's very I, yeah. I feel like it's such a different dynamic. And I'm like I I'll get in these um, we'll get in these situations and I'll go oh my god I'm the Tommy right now. <laughs> it's so interesting you're saying that because I have felt like that is probably what's going to happen to me. So it's so interesting that you're saying that. Like I've actually had that, this feeling, you know, if and when I'm in another partnership like that, I'll probably be the Brian. Like I've really right. thought about that, you know? <laughs> he was always so creative and so just, you know, took chances on things and wasn't scared of what people thought of him. And those were always things that I struggled with and probably why I was so attracted to him because I wanted those attributes for myself. And, and I've definitely, definitely taken on many, many elements of his personality since he's died. It's really cool. That is cool. I'm, I'm, I've never heard that from anyone else. So that really, I'm like, oh my gosh. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, it, it's been, he, yeah, my, my husband, Tommy was very much the, he was incredibly creative. He was an artist. Um, he, he could draw anything. He was just incredibly gifted. Um, very always happy, kind of that light that you were talking about. I, when mm-hmm. you were talking about Brian, I could, I just was like, oh my gosh, it's very similar, <laughs> you know, like Tommy was the light. He was never mean to anyone. So sweet. And yeah. And then now I've, I guess I'm more, way more laid back than I was. I, you know, yeah. try to be more positive and more in the moment and spontaneous. And that's yeah. interesting. I've never heard anyone else say that. So that made, I'm like, oh my gosh. Um, <laughs> always like to end with something that is there a quote or some, a song or a book that you turn to whenever you're having a day or some, you, you kind of need something to uplift you or maybe something that's resonated with you? Hmm. Yes. Okay. So there is a song that is my go-to song that I turn to when I need, it's not so much when I need to be 
uplifted. I think for me, I don't really have anything that I turn to when I need to be uplifted because if I'm feeling a feeling of grief coming on, I try to go into it. So I think I've learned that if I try to just sort of uplift myself, for me, it doesn't work. I'll end up, it's like I'm covering it up, but then I'll notice like I'm snapping at my daughter more or I'm frustrated more or I'm not sleeping and just things don't feel right. So for me, I try to sort of, it's almost like the opposite. Like instead of trying to think positive or be positive or uplift, Mm -hmm. I'll try to give myself space to go into it and then I'll have a release and then I do actually feel better. So it's almost you have to go into it and then and then it ends, the result is that I end up feeling lighter after a release. So for me, there's a song that I go to if I'm feeling like, oh man, I need to, I need to feel something deeply and release it. There's this one song, it's called No Hard Feelings, and it's by the Avit Brothers. And they are a band that I knew of before, but I hadn't listened to in years. And I think this was maybe about six months after Brian died. I actually it was a day when I was really grieving hard. It was a hard, hard day. And I put on music and I just put my iPhone on random. And I actually asked, I said, okay, Brian, because it often will kind of, I feel like I connect to him through music. I feel like that's a way that we connect. Um, and I actually said, like, okay, Brian, I'm going to listen please send me a song that you want to connect to me with. And the song came on. I don't know if I'd ever heard it before. I'm not sure. I don't really rem- It sounded a little familiar, but it, we would have been from years and years before, and I would have never really connected it to death or grief. Mm-hmm. But the lyrics were like, literally like Brian speaking to me. It's, it's his personality. It's, it's the way that I imagine he thinks about death now. Mm-hmm. And the lyrics are so beautiful. So when I need to feel connected to him or to just the experience of him dying, this is the perfect song for me because it goes in. So essentially, um, the the person who's singing the song is imagining what it would be like to die, and sort of wondering and imagining what that would feel like, what that would be. And it just, it is Brian to a T. And the way that the song starts, the lyrics start, when my body won't hold me anymore and it finally lets me be, lets me free, will I be ready? And for me, that's just that this image of my body not being able to hold me anymore is so beautiful. And it just, that feel, like I remember hearing that lyric and just, kind of perking up and being like, okay, I'm listening, you know, because that's what it felt like when Brian was dying. It felt like, okay, here's this body. It's 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 not time for this spirit to be in this body anymore. This body is withering withering away so quickly. And the spirit is just like filling this room and leaving that body behind. So I love that image of a body just not being able to hold. It's like the spirit is almost too big for that body and um the way that the song there's a there's another part in the song that i love where he talks about um walking 
walking through the night straight to the light, holding the love I've known in my life with no hard feelings. And that image too, just feels it resonates so much. I actually have it written. My friend made both Davida and I quilts out of Brian's old clothing and they're so beautiful. And I had her in script uh, or write those, those lyrics on the back of the quilt because they just resonated so much with me. And Mm -hmm. So yeah, if I listen to that song, I feel immediately, music has always been a way that I've connected to myself and my emotions and my intuition and now a way that I connect to Brian. So that's a big one for me. That's great. And so awesome. And so crazy that that's the song that popped on whenever you were like, hey, talk to me. Oh my gosh. Well, this has been such an amazing conversation and I really appreciate your time and your wisdom and your energy and very much appreciate you coming on and talking to me. It's It's been really insightful and fun and healing for me too, to talk to another young widow. So thank you. Oh, thank you so much, Rachel. I, I love your podcast. I was so excited to be on it and I can't wait to listen to all the other episodes that you make. Thank you, Mira. Um, And for anyone listening, again, we will have links to Mira's Instagram and also um, the article that we talked about, as well as I will put a link to that song that she was talking about on on her. Everybody has to listen to that song. It is beautiful, beautiful song. Yeah, so that will be on good days, <laughs> good days, bad days dot show. Um, awesome. Link is in the Instagram bio if you're from coming and listening from Instagram. And uh, yeah, I think that's a wrap. Thank you so much, Mira. Thank you so much, Rachel.